Australia's environmental laws are ineffective, not fit for purpose and are resulting in adverse outcomes. It was a blunt and dire assessment of the nation's 23-year-old Environmental Protection Act handed to the former Morrison government in October 2020. More than two years later, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek today responded, unveiling a plan for sweeping changes, including an independent environmental protection agency and national environmental standards. Our Nature Positive plan will be better for the environment by delivering stronger laws designed to repair nature, to protect our precious plants and animals and places. And of course, a new Environmental Protection Agency will make development decisions and properly enforce them. Professor Graham Samuel authored the review that informed these changes. Welcome to the program, Professor Samuel. Thanks very much. It's Graham. Thanks, Catherine. You're, I, will, I will call you Graham from now on in yeah, on the interview. Yeah. Uh, Graham, your 2020 review called for fundamental reform. Do the three key planks of today's response being enforceable national standards, speeding up decisions and improving trust and integrity meet that criteria? 100%. Um, look, I have to say to you that my reaction to the government's response to Minister Plibersek's um, a document that you put out today is one of, um, how do I put it, complete elation uh, and um, uh, unqualified admiration and respect for the minister. Look, she has done what you know, those of us that worked on the review could have hoped for and only hoped for, and that is she has adopted every one of the recommendations. Mm. Uh, the, the, the recommendations are designed to give a whole new um, uh, legislative and regulatory and cultural uh, approach to protecting our environment and to improving biodiversity in this country. And she has done it in spades. Well, let's have a look at some of the specifics of it. The government has reconfirmed its commitment to establish a federal environmental protection agency, which will be at arm's length of government to decide on and oversees the developments. That role is currently under the federal minister's remit. She'll still be able to call in particular projects, but just how significant a change is this? And what does it mean for removing politics from the decision-making process? It's so important because the last two and a bit decades have shown that the intervention of politics, uh, influenced in its own way by vested interests, by stakeholder interests, yeah, has done enormous damage to our environment uh, and to our biodiversity conservation. Uh, so what the minister has done here is to say, I'm going to take this out of the hands of uh, the politicians, put it in the hands of an independent agency. Um, I recommend an environment assurance commissioner. She's even strengthened that. So. Thank you very much, Minister. I really, I, I think that's superb mm. uh, because what she's done is she's setting up an environment protection agency um, and then that, that slots into all the other recommendations that were made, into the, uh, made in the review. She'll still be able to call in particular projects though. Is that okay? Yes, and, I, and what that's about is this, is that the, the, the review recommended and she's adopted uh, completely the recommendation that states and territories should be given an accreditation to be able to make assessments and do approvals of um, Commonwealth matters, matters that fall, or fall within the, the remit of the Commonwealth under the EPBC Act. Um, now, she's done that for a very good reason, and we recommended it for a reason, which was that you know, we wanted to avoid inconsistencies, we wanted to avoid duplication that occurs. Mm. In other words, to have a more efficient means of dealing with, with uh, development approvals. But, and here's the big important element, national environmental standards would be in place that would say to states and territories, your accreditation is only available 
if you adhere to and agree to adhere to these national environmental mm. standards. If you show any tendency to um, move away from them, I'll call in the projects and I'll deal with them myself okay. uh, I, I, through the EPA. Or if they are matters of really serious environmental significance, then likewise they'll be called in and dealt with um, at Commonwealth level. On those national environmental standards, they won't be introduced into Parliament until next year, but that was another dominant element of the proposed reforms. I mean, this was a common theme in your report. How do the five priority areas marry up with your recommendations? Oh, completely. Uh, see, see, what we did was we, we started to draft the nature of environmental standards, um, ran out of time, unfortunately, because the report was due to be handed to government uh, on 31st October 2020. And there's about another four or five that are required. Um, that's not to say that the standards as, as were drafted for the report are, are the final um, uh, formulation. But we, we, we did, when we, when we were drafting the standards, you know, I took a view that they needed to be quite granular um, in their um, detail mm. uh, because you, you don't want to have that slippage where people say, oh, I've complied with that. Yeah, that's all right. Now, you know, let me give a very good example. Duke and Gorge. Duke and Gorge could not possibly occur if the environmental standard we drafted for Indigenous engagement was uh, had been in place at that time because that standard requires details to be provided of your consultation with uh, First Nations uh, uh, families and First Nations uh, groups uh, that might be impacted by what you're proposing to do. Uh, we want details of the responses that are provided by um, uh, those groups and details of your response to that. Now, none of that was was provided in respect of Duke and Gorge. And, mm. you know, Rio, with the authority of the West Australian government, proceeded to damage you know, 40,000 year old artifacts that were just extraordinary. I mean, mm. you, you, you can't contemplate that could happen. No. It would not be possible if the, if the environmental standard that we drafted for uh, engagement with Indigenous um, uh, people uh, was, was put in place. Yeah, that First Nations engagement and participation in decision making is one of the five areas, but only the first of the five priority areas, matters of national environmental significance, will be open for con consultation next year with the remainder to be dealt with after that. This deals with the threatened species and, and heritage, yeah. as you just alluded to. But is the movement on this happening fast enough, given that there are five areas? Uh, yes. Yes and no. I mean, frankly, I would rather that on the 1st of November 2020, work had started on this. Uh, we did the groundwork um, in drafting the standards as they were um, uh, put into the report. And you'd have thought on the 1st of November 2020, the day after we delivered the report to government, that the government then could have turned around and said, let's start work on it. Now, mm. in fact, unfortunately, they didn't. So we've lost two years. And the um, the report, I think, in Chapter 10 set out a a program of, of um, process, if you like, to implement the report. Well, unfortunately, that program now is starting today. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, thank heavens the minister has made the commitment to actually progress that. So you, you've, almost, you've almost got to go back to the report and see what the two-year time frame was mm. for introduction of legislation, finishing the standards and the like, and then say, well, unfortunately, we're starting uh, today, that is uh, 8th of December, um, we've, we've lost uh, two and a bit years. Two years down the track, will Australia be able to make up for that delay? Uh, yes, um, but but it won't be in just two years. It'll be it'll take a decade or more. Remember, we've lost two and a bit decades of degradation of our environment and degradation of our 
biodiversity. It, it is heartbreaking to see what's occurred. It's been heartbreaking, frankly, to see what occurred in relation to our our dealings with First Nations. You know, they, they were symbolic. Mm. They paid lip service to the extraordinary science that had been developed over 50 to 60,000 years by First Nations peoples and to the culture that was there and that should have been respected and adhered to. Mm. And so all those issues, you know, will now be dealt with. And um, as I say, the Minister has shown um, an extraordinary and an admirable commitment to, um, to, to change our laws, change our processes and our regulations to provide a combination of efficiency in dealing with environmental issues, but at the same time to deal with the the restoration of our environment. Remembering the word that she's used right throughout is, I want to see a net benefit. I want to see a benefit flow mm, mm. from every environmental approval that's given in the future. Mm. On RN Drive, Professor Graham Samuel is here discussing the government's response to his recommended reforms of the national environmental laws. On the offsets um, outlined today, developers, uh, Graham, are able to put money into an offset fund for environmental restoration instead of having to deliver like for like. Uh, restoration. New South Wales has been criticised by the regulator for their offset scheme. I mean, why mm. this focus on offsets? Is that a negative for the environment? Yes, it has always been a negative. And in fact, the, the first comment that was made to me by the leader of the secretary in the department when I walked into my office at uh, in Canberra to start this review was the offset arrangements are awful. Um, they are, um, you know, in a sense, they're, 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 they are so degraded, they're, they're so poor that they're not helping at all. Now, um, the review says two or three things. The first is um, let's, let's stop using offsets as the first port of call. Um, when you're doing a development, you've got to demonstrate that you've made every effort to avoid the damage. Mm. Then you've made every effort, if you can't avoid it, to mitigate the damage. And then offsets is the is the third default position. Now, then offsets have got to be done in a way that provides a net benefit. So it's no use saying I'm going to destroy a particular habitat that has an impact on koalas. But what I'm going to do is down the road, I'm going to buy a block of land and I'll never do anything to um, destroy that. Uh, without actually noting the fact that that block of land was never ever going to be developed anyway. Mm, mm. And, and there, yeah. so there are those sorts of issues. In addition, what we've got to do is to get to a position where the, the market says, this gets a bit complicated, but gets to a position where the market says it's more valuable not to log forests, not to deforest um, uh, you know, large areas of, of our natural habitat, mm. but it's more valuable to leave it there because of the carbon sink that's involved with the, the trees that are in the forest mm. and because of the biodiversity elements of it. So it's a combination of carbon credits, biodiversity credits. And um, you know, there's work being done at the moment on setting up a market for those those sorts of issues. The carbon credit market is already there, mm. uh, subject mm. to review by Ian Chubb, but the biodiversity market is not there. And no. What, what, what I'd love to see is a position where a farmer says, do you know what? I'm better off not clearing that land for cattle breeding. I can get a far better return by leaving the trees there because I've got credits that will be yeah. available for sale to to big business that wants them. Looking at certain opportunities that might not have been seen in opportunities uh, before that. We've only got about 30 exactly. seconds left, uh, Graeme, but I just did want to ask you about the climate trigger. Today's plan doesn't include one. You recommended that it be dealt with in separate legislation. Environmental groups and Greens have lobbied for it mm. to be included in this reform package. How could it be incorporated into other legislation and, and what role could it play? 
Well, I'm not in favour of climate triggers in the first place because what they do is they say, oh, anything up to 100,000 tonnes is OK, but anything beyond that is not OK. And it seems to me that that's too numerical. Um, what, in fact, recommendation two in my report said was this. Every proponent for um, uh, you know, an environmental proposal, uh, uh, approval has got to detail the assessment of the impact on carbon and also detail what is proposed by the proponent to mitigate that impact. Right? So it's a, a transparency issue. Mm, and mm-hmm. I can envisage that those sort of things will be taken into account in determining, or, in determining whether or not environmental approvals ought to be given. That's not a climate trigger but it's a climate discipline. It seems to me that's far more relevant and far more important than simply saying, oh, over 100,000 tonnes per year, that's mm. no good. Anything under 100,000 tonnes per year is good. I don't think, I, I, I'd actually don't think that that, that um, yeah, has much credit, frankly. Professor Graeme Samuel led an independent review of the EPBC Act, which informed today's announcement, and he's been our guest on RN Drive. Graeme, thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.